you to know that I appreciate the Word of God. I have enjoyed every service. I have enjoyed every preacher. My. Brother Keys preached about seeing the kingdom. I kind of think this is what feeling the kingdom is kind of like. I, boy, I'm reluctant here. I was so impacted by Brother White's message. I don't know if I can All right. get in gear or not here. Thank you again to the people responsible for this meeting. I want to say thank you to the local church ladies and men that prepare all of the fine things that we've enjoyed. Thank you to Brother and Sister Sorrels and their family. Hospitality has been outstanding. The room, the things in the room, never been treated nicer, never been treated more cordially. They have fulfilled the scriptural admonition to be given to hospitality in, in every sense of the word. Thank you. And I have mixed emotions about this meeting. I have at points felt like a frog on a dissecting table in a biology class. I feel like every time they can't take out another part of me, they reach in and get something else. And they have just turned the searchlight on me. I don't know if they've got you guys or not, but they have got me in this meeting. I appreciate it. I want it. I want God to talk to me. From the book of 2 Chronicles, if you would turn to chapter 13. I apologize to Brother White. I'm not going to help him as much as he helped me. He has heard this subject before, so if he wanders out during the course of this, don't feel bad at him. We made a little bargain here a while back. I would go preach for him two nights and he would come preach for me two nights. That is the best bargain I have made to this date in my lifetime. It's like trading a Jaguar for a Volkswagen. And I preached this to his church. I feel strongly to preach this today. Moments like this, I have this little inner mechanism that clicks like this, and it may not make sense to you, but this is how it works in my left-sided linear brain. It says, if I only had one time to preach, what would I preach? As far as I know, this is the only chance I get. I don't, I'm not inferring that I won't ever have another opportunity to preach. I'm saying this is now. This is today. And one thing the Greeks passed to the Romans that was beneficial to them, that helped found their empire, that lasted for 700 years was the word carpe diem. You may be familiar with it. It was simply seize the moment. They had the principle that you only live once. So if you're going to live, live. Don't vegetate. Don't just exist. But seize that moment and live. And that concept helped the Romans to build the empire that impacted our world and was in existence when Christ came. No doubt accented the efforts of the Apostle Paul. He preached during one of the Pax Romanas, which only occurred twice during their 700-year history, that's empire-wide peace. 
common language, common money, good roads, a lot of benefits that enhanced Christianity and probably had an impact on the world that would not have occurred had there not been that opportune moment from the Roman Empire. Through that open door, Christianity walked. History tells us, by all accounts, any way you want to measure it, within 300 years, 10% of the Roman Empire's 50 million inhabitants claim to be a follower of Jesus. That's a staggering accomplishment that 10%, one out of every 10 people of a heathenistic, polytheistic society had been impacted by the message that there was a man called Jesus. He died on a cross and they claimed him to be their savior. I don't know that they'll all be saved, but it's an incredible achievement. I'm going to try today to view the Bible from an overview on the plane coming out the pilot announced at one point if you look out over the left wing and high in the sky you'll see a weather balloon I'd never seen one so I did I got down on one knee and looked out one of those little tiny windows over by the galley sure enough there it was floating high in the atmosphere and I thought my what a view there would be from that if I were in that balloon and so I'm going to try to give that kind of a view today to a subject that is pertinent to all of us. And I will select for this a passage out of Second Chronicles. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam began Abijah to reign over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. And there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. And Abijah set the battle in array with an army of valiant men of war, even 400,000 chosen men. Would you say 400,000? 400, Jeroboam also set the battle in array against him with 800,000 chosen men, being mighty men of valor. Would you say 800,000? And Abijah stood upon Mount Zeremim, which is in Mount Ephraim, and said, Hear me, thou Jeroboam, and all Israel. Ought ye not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingdom over Israel to David forever, even to him and to his sons by a covenant of salt? Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, is risen up and hath rebelled against his Lord. There are gathered unto him vain men, children of Belial, and have strengthened themselves against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam is young and tender-hearted and could not withstand them. And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hand of the sons of David. And ye be a great multitude, and there are with you golden calves, which Jeroboam made you for gods. The next four verses are subject of my interest today. Have you not cast out the priest of the Lord, the sons of Aaron, and the Levites, and have made you priest after the manner of the nations of other lands, so that whosoever cometh to consecrate himself with a young bullock and seven rams, the same may be a priest of them that are no gods. But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him and the priest which minister unto the Lord 
are the sons of Aaron, and the Levites wait upon their business. And they burn unto the Lord every morning and every evening burnt sacrifices and sweet incense. The showbread also set they in order upon the pure table, the candlestick of gold with the lamps thereof to burn every evening, for we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but ye have forsaken him. And behold, God himself is with us for our captain, and his priest with sounding trumpets to cry alarm against you, O children of Israel. Fight ye not against the Lord God of your fathers, for you shall not prosper. Verse 17 says, Abijah and his people slew them with a great slaughter. So there fell down slain of Israel five hundred thousand chosen men. That is a significant battle, wouldn't you say? Under any terms in any annals of history, 500,000 men fell in battle that day. You may be seated. At times, when I've talked about this subject, I've called it your greatest danger because I believe that what I'm going to talk about today is the greatest danger you will ever face in your spiritual walk. At other times I've called it when a man becomes his own priest. So take your choice, makes me no difference today. It's what I want to talk about that I'm primarily interested in. It is of uh, real interest to me why this story that I read to you today is recorded in the book of Chronicles but is not recorded in the book of the Kings. That caused me to do a little comparison between the two books. In literary efforts, one of the styles of writing as a compare and contrast uh, essay style. There are others, there are narrative, descriptive definitions, there's all kinds, but one of them is compare and contrast when you compare two subjects. And in this case, two books. When you look at the book of the Kings, originally it was one book, it uh, begins, First Kings begins with the reign of, of um, Solomon and David and Solomon being anointed as king. And probably the greatest and most outstanding achievement of the book of the Kings is the building of the temple, the finest building in the world of that day. Seven years in building, 200,000 men laboring to accomplish that feat. Solomon eventually falls and the second half of the book of First Kings anyway is the grim dismemberment of his nation that he had, that he had uh, accumulated there. And it's, it's a very sad, sad reading. And when you add to that the book of Second Kings, you find that, uh, as I mentioned the other night, none of the northern kings followed the Lord. They um, all worshipped the golden calves, and it was a tragic period in their history. It was an endless cycle of intrigue and, and bloody revolt, and just one king putting down another. And uh, includes the story of Sennacherib coming, and contemporary accounts tell us that he 
marched in there and got right to the walls of Judah itself and took 46 cities and carried away some 200,150 people. And uh, he dismissed Hezekiah as nothing more than a bird in a cage. And so we come to the end of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, as I mentioned the other night, continues on for another 135 years. I need to tell you this to get my point across today, so I'm not just rambling, if you'll give me just a moment to give you the, the background. In comparison, when you take your initial glance at the book of First and Second Chronicles, it first of all looks like a rehash of the same material that you have already read. And if you're, if you're careful and you analyze it, you will immediately note that it eliminates some of the most human elements of the kings. It does not include, for instance, the slaying of the giant by the name of Goliath. Neither does it include David's involvement with Bathsheba. Those stories are not included in the writings of the man that wrote the book of First and Second Chronicles. That's why most of us enjoy reading First and Second Kings more than we enjoy reading First and Second Chronicles. We are usually more interested in personalities than we are in institutions and genealogies. And so we like kings better generally. When you look at the book of the Chronicles, there are two things that stand out to me. First of all, Chronicles is dealing more with the lasting institutions rather than the ups and the downs of an individual. It was these two things that Chronicles is built around. It is built around the monarchy, the lasting line of David, and the temple, the glorious center of worship and praise to God. These books remind the Israelites of how different they were meant to be as a nation. There was a time in the history of nation of Israel when they desperately needed somebody to encourage them. They needed to look again at their past and realize what God had promised them. They had been torn from their homes. They had been beaten, drugged away and changed to serve as slaves in foreign countries. In Babylon, a new generation had grown up that knew very little about their past as a nation, their covenant with God the promises made to their kings and their temple that had been in Jerusalem. When those captives returned back to Jerusalem, they did not find a glorious temple. They found a pile of rubble. They saw that during Israel's golden age that people had come in and worshipped and had the majesty of the glory of God. But to their horror, their temple that they revered so much had not been left standing. The ivory and the gold had been stripped out. The furniture had been destroyed. The building had been hacked to pieces. And there they were, a nation that had once been glorious. A nation that had once been supreme among the nations. Now, just a band of refugees hoping to rebuild some former glory. And so Chronicles approaches it from a different point. That's why it does not point out the failures of its leaders. That's why it centers on the lasting institutions, the temple and the monarchy. It builds its story around the things that lasted, trying to inject 
like some kind of, of stimulant drug into the veins of dispirited refugees that, hey, this nation is going to live again. When you understand the overtone of the intent and the purpose of the books, they make more sense. That's why Chronicles doesn't include what Kings does and Kings doesn't include what Chronicles does. Chronicles totally ignores the chaotic northern kingdom. If you'll carefully look, it, it, it ignores it totally. Secondly, it goes back differently. If you read the book of First and Second Samuel and First and Second King, they begin with the history under the kings, and that, that's what they talk about. But when you open the book of Chronicles, it reaches all the way back to Adam. And it says, this is our history. Let me tell you something, refugee. Let me tell you, dispirited pilgrim. Let me tell you, disheartened child of God. We may not look like we're much right now, but we don't just go back a few hundred years. We go all the way back to the very beginning. And that's what the writer of Chronicles was putting in their heart. It was like, I'm going to give you a higher vision. I'm going to restore some pride in you of the idea of this nation and what it was founded on. In fact, as you begin to read it, you see that the author was very biased indeed. Researchers are always careful about a tendency to what we call confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is as it sounds, as the name implies. It's a bias that confirms what you already believe. Scientists, be they nuclear scientists or physicists or whether they be historians, makes no difference. You have to beware of confirmation bias. Making the facts fit your already held beliefs. They didn't do that in the book of Chronicles. He ignored the northern kingdom and in large part ignored all but the eight good kings of Judah. Two-thirds of the book of Second Chronicles is devoted to the reign of these eight men. It was like when they found something that was good. We could take a lesson from this. When they found something that was good. When they found something that was right. When they found something that was notable. When they found something that was blessed of God. When they found something that bore the imprint and the fingerprint of God. He said, I'm going to write about this. I'm going to tell about this. I'm going to avoid the sordid details that the familiar with the books of kings have been around for years everybody knows the downfalls of our heroes everybody knows the sordid ugly details of David's affair with Bathsheba I won't waste my time writing about that I'm going to write about a glorious future I'm going to write about men that walked with God I'm going to write about reformers and kings that were righteous before their God and so two-thirds of his book is written to the reign of good kings and the overall message is God lived among us in the past and he will live among us again when you read the stories in 2nd Chronicles they're familiar to you follows many other Bible passages and the author admits at times that he borrows from the other books you will find in the book of Chronicles writings from Moses and Samuel and quotes from the kings he also quotes from the book of Judges from the prophet Jeremiah there are things there from the Psalms from the writer Isaiah and from the Lamentations as well as other books that have been lost somewhere in the journey to antiquity it is not merely just a repeat or a rehash next time you read it you don't need to feel like I'm just reading something that's already been stated in another 
book. You hear me today. It, God didn't put it in the Bible just to be repetitious. It is not merely a repeat. It weaves together stories and facts for a very specific purpose. And that is the purpose of Jewish philosophy on history. Chronicles sheds light on history by highlighting their moments of peace and prosperity. The moments that they truly worshipped their God. And the things that were woven into the fabric of their history that made them strong as a nation. That's what the book of Chronicles given to us for. That's the reason that I got interested in this particular story that I read to you as a text today. Because this story is a story about a king that is given very, very little attention in the book of Kings. If you read about Abijah in the book of Kings, it's really a footnote. I mean, there's a few verses there, but when you read it, it's just the writer is saying this guy was really a big zero. He just gets a few little words and it says he was wicked and he moves on. But the writer of Chronicles, having the perspective that I'm giving you today, realizing that the nation needed to be built on noble ideas and principles, writing from retrospect, looking back on the outcome of various times, selects this day that must have been a notable day. 500,000 men don't die and it not affect a nation. Do you understand? There were probably 500,000 widows and probably a million and a half lonely hungry children somewhere because their dad did not come home from war. He did not come back in victory. He died on the battlefield somewhere and the kings eliminates it and does not even mention it. But the chronicler said something's here. Wait a minute. I see something in this story that is worth future generations looking back on. I see something in this story that down through the ages we need to remember what happened on the battlefield this day. What were the components of battle? What were the strokes on the canvas that make this so glorious that the writer wrote it down? When I read it to you, you look at it and say, hey, that's not really much of a story. But I believe incumbent in this story is a little nugget of truth that has relevance to us today. As a matter of fact, I find in it a principle that I think is so powerful that it will help you live for God in your darkest, weakest moments. Now you don't have to have a lot of military acumen to figure out that 400,000 men against 800,000 men is not very good odds, okay? I'm not a brilliant military strategist. I've read some of the other stuff like you have. I was interested, so I read. I read about Alexander the Great, his great conquest, three major battles. Each of them pivoted on the opening of an entire area. I read in thir well, 334 BC, he fought the battle that opened up Egypt, went in there, became Pharaoh, became king of Egypt. One year later, fought the battle that opened up all of Persia in 333. I read about the battle he fought in 331 at Granikonos, and he opened up the entire Orient, went all the way to the Indus River, and had he not caught a fever, uh, 11 days later died quickly. He was headed for Rome, probably would have taken that. Who knows where Alexander would have went had he not died at 33 years of age. I read about that. Maybe you've read about some of the famous wars, the Peloponnesian Wars between Athens and Sparta. That interests me. The Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage. I mentioned the other 
other night. The Norman Conquest, 1066, the Battle of Hastings that brought the influence of the French aristocracy to England and various wars that ultimately consummated in the Hundred Years' War. That kind of stuff interests me. But none of them are more, more interesting than what you find in your Bible. I'm telling you that in this Bible right here are some of the most interesting stories, whether it's war or intrigue or political clandestine movements, you can find it all in your Bible if you just spend a little time looking and a little time reading. Don't let your daily Bible reading become a duty to be discharged. For years I read my Bible like it was some duty. It was like brushing my teeth. I, I had my little Bible chart and I hope I'm not being critical here, I'm being honest. I had my little Bible reading chart and I would read it and I had to hurry up and get to this done and get that done and get my list done and so I'd spend my 15 minutes because that was my responsibility and it was a duty to be discharged. There was a moment in my life when I said, you know what, I'm getting off of this little merry-go-round because all I'm doing is reading chapter after chapter and my mind's off somewhere else and you can look holy today but I think there's got to be somebody here that's done it before. You read it and you think, what in the world is that talking about? I don't even know what that's talking about. And it was just a duty to be discharged. It was a Pentecostal catechism. It was a thing that we do just to be good and there's nothing wrong with it. Please don't misunderstand me. But I made a simple decision. I'm not going to read it like that anymore. I want to know what this book says. I want to assimilate it into my spirit. I want to know more than just what it says there. Help me God. And when I did that, I fell in love with the Word of God. It became more than just a book to me. It's more than just some duty to be discharged. I don't read it now because I have to read it. I read it because I want to read it. I read the books and I understand them a little better because there's a hunger inside of me to understand what this book is talking about. In this particular instance, it is a classical example of the difference between Chronicles and Kings. In this instance, a king that is given almost no note at all in the book of Kings by the name of Abijah goes out to fight a king by the name of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the one, and I don't want to go through the history lesson again. I did it the other night. But if you remember the fact that, that Rehoboam made the bad decision, the ten tribes go to the north, Jeroboam becomes their king. Rehoboam stayed in the south, and so there was civil war between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Rehoboam died. Abijah is his son. And so like a good son, he picks up the weapon and says, we're going to go fight some more. And so this is his debut into the battlefield of the kings. This is the day that he walks out for the very first time with his armies amassed behind him. And against him is Jeroboam, the seasoned warrior. Jeroboam, the man with 800,000 valiant men of battle. The Bible does let us know that with Abijah were 400,000 men, chosen men, good men. They were men that were willing to fight, but nobody can excuse the discrepancy in the numbers. Let me tell you, it doesn't matter whether you want to project it up or project it down. When you've got twice as many as the other guy, it's a rough go. If one man's fighting two, it's hard. If five men are fighting ten, it's hard. If a hundred men are fighting two hundred, it's hard. That simplistic equation is what was occurring here. Abijah looked at 400,000 men and it might have looked like a lot of men till they got to the battlefront and it and there were 800,000 men opposing him. They were not cowards on the other side of the line. They were not men trembling in fear. These were valiant, seasoned men with hands on the hilts of their sword, with their soldiers arched back 
ready to go to battle. These were not men that were saying, let's find a peaceful confrontation. They were saying, get the palaver out of the way. I'm ready to go. I want to fight. And so this was a notable day in their history. And Abijah, for all his other failures, and I, he must have had a lot for the writer of the kings to dismiss him so quickly as a zero in their history. I know he only reigned for three years, but still, I mean, they just dismissed him like he was non-existent. Nothing in life hurts more than to be totally ignored. And the writer of Kings just said, Psst, he was a bad guy, go on. Chronicles saw something in this day that reaches yet to our day. And Abijah, he said, now Job, now let me put it in my own words, okay? Abijah says, you got your 800,000 men out there and we've only got our 400,000. But you guys are going to lose this battle. You know why you're going to lose it? For the simple reason, we have the priest of the Lord on our side. And that sounded so, so inane, so lame, so like, what? You're saying that is your secret weapon? Don't you see the bulging biceps of my front line of warriors? Don't you realize that you can kill half our army and we still see eye to eye? Come on, Abijah. But Abijah had a little revelation from God. He said, let me tell you something, boys. What we have on our side is the plan of God. What we have on our side is what God told us to have. And you might have more soldiers and you might have more experience, but you don't have the plan. And as long as I rally around the plan of God, as long as I've got in my hand what God promised the answer was supposed to be, I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of your army. And we will fight you today. And we will win today because we are in the plan of God. He said, now, all them boys you got over there on your side said, they can buy their way into the priesthood. If his daddy's got enough lambs to spare, all he's got to do is take a few goats, rams, and he can buy his way in to the priesthood. And he said, adding insult to injury, he said, by the way, they're priests of priests that are no, of gods that are no gods. <laughs> a little spitting on their gods to boot. But he said, but as for us, I just want to remind you, Jeroboam, and I would really like to know what rippled through Jeroboam's heart and mind that day when Abijah stepped on this sacred ground when he said, but we have with us the priest of the Lord. They are the sons of Aaron. They offer the sacrifice. They are consecrated to God. We have in our midst the plan that God gave to Israel for a priesthood and let me tell you something God has a beautiful plan for your life and if you ever get to thinking that you don't need the priesthood if you ever get to thinking you don't need a preacher after all the other groups got more people after all the other group has more fun their altars are more enticing you need to listen to me today and realize that one of the great things God gave you was a priesthood in your life I 
pastor a church today that probably is not that different than most of you. In my church today, there are a number of people that have higher education. I have a number of people that have degrees that are teachers and other professions. I have one lady that's right close to her uh, master's degree. In fact, my daughter is just one semester away from her bachelor's degree. And I have, at last count, I think we had about 18 people in college in various stages from just entering to closing in on a master's or a bachelor's degree. And I don't say this in any way as an insult to the previous generation, but let me say it honestly. We preach to a different caliber of people today. Uh, 50 years ago, you could preach things and not have a whole lot to say, and people would respond to that. The level of understanding, the level of education was not as high as it is today. And I don't think that's all the difference. I don't think that makes any difference at all and most of the time. But what I'm saying is the people that we are pastoring, exception to the rule. Every person in this building probably has the skill to pick up the Bible and read it for themselves. The inherent danger in that, listen to me now, the inherent danger to that is this, that you can get so knowledgeable and you can get so skilled and you can get so intelligent that if you're not careful, you don't need what the preacher has to say. After all, you can read it for yourself. After all, anybody can read the Bible and have a little personal devotion and I can see what the Bible has to say now this might not mean much to you but to me some of the most feared words I have come to hear in my lifetime is when you see a saint begin to slip you see him begin to drift there's a noted lack of fervency in them that was once existent and now they're slowly cooling off and after a while, you know things aren't the way they used to be. And they come to you with the words, you know, Pastor, I've been praying. And that always makes a little signal go up in my spirit. And they say, you know, we, we feel like maybe we need to uh, change churches. Or we feel like maybe we need to go here. Or we need to do that. And they begin to walk into an area where they become their own priest. And some of you may misunderstand me today, but I'll take that chance. I'm not advocating dictatorships. I'm not advocating running every facet of people's lives. But I am telling you there is a plan in your life for a man of God. And the greatest danger that my generation faces today, in my opinion, is that we are learning how to become our own priest. We are learning how to walk into the areas that once was reserved for men of God and their judgment and their ideas. And we needed their oversight and we needed their understanding. And today we have people that know how to pray and fast and get it for themselves. And they now tell the pastor what they're going to do instead of seeking his godly counsel and his advice. As I look at our generation, and our generation will be termed with some sin just like every 
every other generation is termed with some besetting sin. When you look at the ages in the Bible, this is a Bible principle. Jesus looked at the church of Ephesus and he said, let me tell you about you. You have left your first love. He characterized their one major fault. He looked at Pergamos. He said, you have the doctrine of Balaam. He looked at Thyatira. He said, you have suffered Jezebel to teach. He looked at Sardis and said, I have not found your works perfect before God. He looked at Laodicea and said, you are lukewarm. Each and every instance of those churches, God characterized their major failing. Generations of time somehow have a way of settling down into where a sin is prevalent. There is an overtone of sin. When you look at Noah's day, if I said, what was the besetting sin? I think we could argue it out and probably agree that licentiousness was their besetting sin. For that's the sin that God said, I'm sick of it. Their heart is setting them to do evil continually. I'm going to destroy the world by a flood. I think if I looked at Noah's day, that's what you would have to agree with. If I looked at Adam and Eve and went back a little further, I think we could agree that the besetting sin of their generation was simply disobedience. They did not obey the voice of God. When I look at Jeroboam, it's not hard to say what's the besetting sin of his era. It's the golden calves. When I look at Abraham's day and I say what sin is the most prevalent, prominent sin of the day of Abraham. I don't think it's hard to, to see it. I think it's the only time in the history of God's world that he got so sick of a sin. He said, I'm going to rain fire and brimstone down on two cities because I'm sick of the way they're living. And the sin of sodomy would become the besetting sin of that generation. You hear me today. Ages and eras have their besetting sin. And my question to you is when we look back on our day, what will be the besetting sin of our generation? First of all, each generation is the accumulation of all prior generations. That's why we see in our midst today the rise of homosexuality, the worship of gold in ways that we've never seen it before. Let me tell you something. When I was a boy in high school, if you wore an earring and you were a boy, they'd rip it out of your ear. Man, where I went to school, old boy decided to grow his hair long one time. It was the surfers against the, I don't remember what the other ones were. Maybe they were cowboys. I don't know. But this old boy had long hair one day. And I was coming in from gym class one day, and I couldn't get in the gym. It was jammed up. Big hall. There was probably 200 guys in there, and it was all arms and legs and yelling and screaming. I said, what are they doing? They said, they're giving a surfer a haircut. I said, what? One old boy got his pocket knife out. And they said, we're going to give you a haircut, buddy. He was wearing his hair down to his shoulders back when that was popular. Combing it real pretty and probably, uh, you know, mixing those egg tonics and putting it in there so it would be nice and pretty. Those boys grabbed him, put him down on the floor, took a pocket knife and gave him a haircut. When he got up, all he had was big splotches all over his head. <laughs> it was not acceptable what I went to high school for a boy to wear an earring. We see a prevalence of it today. The rise of gold. The rise of homosexuality. The rise of licentiousness. The rise of disobedience. Because we are the aggregate of all previous generations to this time. But we will also have our besetting sin. And I'm not in any way arrogant enough to say I'm the only one that can test the wind and tell you what it is. This is simply my observation. That in pastoring, in watching people backslide, in trying to put families back together, in trying to provide spiritual counsel and help. The people that I cannot help are the people 
people that become their own priest are the people that know how to pray it through for themselves they have the answer before they ever get to my office they know what the answer is they don't want my advice and if I give it they're not going to take it they know what they need you hear me today it's the greatest danger you face when you don't need a preacher anymore in your life I'm telling you you're on your way to apostasy God designed this thing that you've got to have a preacher not just any preacher but a God called preacher that's what Abijah stands out in the book of Chronicles about he had the revelation that the old boy might not have been the best king we ever had but he had this one insight that we better stay with a God called ministry we better stay with the preacher even though he doesn't have as many and the simple little <laughs> conclusion is who won the battle that day Abijah won the battle because he appealed to the plan of God may I say to you today that when you get to that point and you will when you get to that point in your life that you're staggering and you're reeling and you don't know where to turn you need to avail yourself of the man of God in your life I can't tell you how deep this runs in me because God will honor his words you don't believe that you need to read the book of Corinthians where Paul said God ain't talking now this is just my advice I'm telling you what I think what did God think of that God put it in his holy book and heaven and earth are going to pass away but those words are not going to pass away God endorsed and I could give you a dozen examples I don't want to stop and take the time in the Bible where a man that was anointed of God a God called man said something and God said alright I will stand by that because God stands by the man he stands by him because his plan is perfect and let me tell you where we get all fouled up in our mind when we look at the man and we see the imperfections of the man and that's all we can see is the man then our faith wavers or we see one fall or God forbid we would be mistreated by one of them and we get our eyes on the man I'm here to preach to you today the man is fallible the man is human the man has mistakes but get your eyes off the man and get your eyes on the plan and as long as you stay with the plan I'm here to tell you you will make it in your crisis you will walk through your valley of despair because the plan is perfect God uses imperfect men for a perfect plan ah. and when you get that revelation it will help you live for God there's a little instance in the Bible that occurred in Leviticus, I think it's chapter 10. Brother White, would you turn there for me? Leviticus chapter 10. I'll draw today on many messages that I've heard and been blessed through the years. I, where's Brother Howard? Gary Howard, are you here today? Was it you that preached about that preacher shutting the door that time in Malachi chapter 1? Seemed like I heard you preach about, would to God there was a preacher that shut the door? You better hope to God somebody in your life will shut the door. You better hope you've got a preacher that will tell you to get a haircut when you need it. You better hope you've got a preacher that will tell you not to go places when you don't need to go there. There better be something inside you that says this is God's plan. I may not always understand and if I get hung up on the infallible marks of a man.
plan and I get to looking at the fallibility of a man instead of the infallibility of the plan, I'll get hung up somewhere. But this little incident in Bible history touched me when I read this. One time, well let me read first. Uh, Leviticus chapter 10 verse 1 is the story of Nadab and Abihu offering strange fire unto God. Now don't feel bad at these boys. If you do, you need to read chapter 9. There was a great display of fire. I mean, fire was the going thing, okay? Fire was cool, man. God showed them how to use it in chapter 9. I, I don't think their motive was necessarily bad. They just said, man, look at that awesome display of fire. Let's try a little of this. But what happened in verse 1? Verse 1 and 2. Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, put fire therein, now I'm not a Bible scholar and I don't know all this but probably got the fire in the wrong place. They probably did it at the wrong spot. Had to come from the altar of sacrifice. If your fire don't have no sacrifice, God doesn't want it. I don't know if that's right or not but that's what I think. Okay. And offered they offered strange fire. They didn't get it from the altar of sacrifice. They got it from somewhere that was convenient. You know, uh, the candlestick or whatever. Alright? Which he commanded them not. There went out fire. There went out. God fought Excuse the pun, fire with fire. Okay, excuse the pun. God fought fire with fire. Yes. Went fire from the Lord and what? And devoured them. They died before the Lord. Where's Brother Keys? Do you remember going to Fiji and you took me with you? And that, Do you remember that trip? Do you remember getting back to Hawaii and going to McDonald's? Do you remember that day sitting in that little tent? Oh Jesus, it was wonderful. We'd been in Fiji for seven days or whatever and we went to a restaurant and we opened up the menu and everything was, what was that stuff? Curry? Curry. Curry everything. Curry chicken, curry cereal, curry soup, curry stuff. You think I'm exaggerating? I promise you before God everything was curry. Curry, curry. I got so sick. I don't like curry to this day. I, uh, no curry for me. The last day, Brother Keys was taking a nap. I went down to the store and bought a little jar of peanut butter and a little jar of jelly and a loaf of bread and went back to the room and ate peanut butter and jelly sandwich and thought it was wonderful. When we got to Hawaii, we couldn't wait to eat some regular food, something that wasn't curried. So we went to McDonald's and I remember this vividly, Brother Keys. I don't know how well you remember. I remember getting that food and he's so careful and so polite and he's always so, you know, he, he's really, really a gentleman in every way and he, he would do his food just right. Get his, son, I wanted that Big Mac so bad. I ripped into that Big Mac. I devoured that Big Mac. That means there wasn't a sesame seed left on the tabletop. Get it in your mind, devoured to me means you devour it. It's gone. The Bible says fire came from God and devoured them. Now in my mind, my little pea brain, my scheme of this, you know, your mental image, the schema, was that some little boy came trucking out with a little dustpan and a broom and he whisked up the ashes and there was Nadab and Abihu. Because <laughs> it said, you know, I got this mental image of this. Fire coming down going like a bug on a on a bug machine, you know, out on the porch. You look up and it's a big June bug and it goes and you start saying, Oh man, I wish it The Bible says fire came from the Lord and devoured them. And in my mind it was over. 
But read on. Find that scripture for me. You know where it is down there about verse 5 or whatever it is. It says, when they came to pick them up, what was left? So they went near. So they went near. And carried them, and carried them in their coats. Out of the camp. When I read that, I thought, it is incredible. The accuracy of God's fire. God reached in and devoured the man and left the coat intact. You know why he did that? Because that garment was the priestly garment. And he said, somebody else is going to be wearing this garment tomorrow. We're not going to mess with the plan. We're just going to deal with the man. And when you get that revelation, when you give it back to God and say, God, the man may not be perfect, but the plan is perfect. I'm telling you what, it'll put you at ease. It'll give you room to love your pastor in ways you've never loved him before. Because he's not a demagogue. He's not God. He's not even the angel Gabriel. He might have married an angel, but he's not an angel. I know the Bible says he's the angel to the church, but I'm telling you, he's got faults. He's got ways. But when you remember that God can take his fire and God knows how to deal with the preacher. I believe in preachers dealing with preachers. I don't believe in saints dealing with preachers. I think you ought to let God and the ministry take care of any situation that ain't right. But I'm telling you, God knows how to do it. God's fire is accurate, I'm telling you. He can reach in a burning fiery furnace and burn the ropes off them boys' hands, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, without singeing their clothes or leaving the taint of smell on their clothes. God's fire is accurate. I'm going to tell you what's wrong with us today. Too many people are looking at the preacher and saying, I'm as smart as he is. I'm more educated than he is. I live in a better house than he does. Therefore, I'm probably just as capable of knowing who to marry or where to go to school or what job to take or what other other information in your life may come along you hear me today your greatest danger is when you become your own priest when you look around and say I don't need the preacher anymore I'm telling you we need a revelation again in 1994 that God still has a ministry you know what happens to some folks they work for years to get a degree or establish a career and I don't say this critically, but I'll say it realistically. Their career becomes their pillar of fire and their cloud by day. Don't feel bad at me. But for a plastic name badge and 15 cents an hour and raise, you're willing to move 500 miles across town or across the country to another job. Your pillar of fire and your cloud by day is your occupation. Could I submit to you today that it was never intended to be that way? Could I submit to you today that the church should be the center of your life? And that that cloud by day and that pillar by night ought to be the spiritual moving of a person that follows their pastor and their congregation. You hear me? You'll do better to stay where you're at. God knew what he was doing when he saved you. He brought you into that family. He caused you to be born in that family. I'm strong on staying and helping your pastor. I'm strong on staying there and saying thank you for the opportunity sir but I believe I'll stay here. I've known people and I won't take time to digress to tell 
you their story, but I know people in my lifetime who made the decision to stay with their church because their children were involved and they loved their pastor and they didn't want to rip up their spiritual roots and try to transplant them somebody, somewhere else and God invariably blessed them. God sanctioned their life and God gave them promotion and God raised them up because they waited on God and said, I will not follow this cloud of the job but I will listen to a man of God. The greatest instance of that in my life has been my father-in-law. He had in one year 37 opportunities to transfer. 37. All of them up. All of them increase in pay. All of them good. All of them with the state of California. All of them. Premier positions. He got saved in Bakersfield under Brother I.H. Terry. Brother Frost took the church. And every time a job opening came up, he smiled, thanked them profusely. Sometimes would even go and look at it to make them feel good. Make them feel like he wasn't discounting their confidence in him. But in his mind, he said, I will not leave my church and I will not leave my pastor. This is more important to me than my job. This is more, because I can lose my job. The economy may go belly up. We may vote in a governor that, that, that somehow cuts out the budget and my job may not be there. But I've got to save my kids. And, I've, and today, one of his sons is a preacher and both of them are licensed and and, and his, his daughter is married to me and, and they have a family in the church today. What is that worth to a saint? Is it worth $10 a month more or $50 a month more to move off over here somewhere to an unknown quantity? You don't know what your kids are going to be subjected to. Hear me today! You need to go back to the Bible principle that my cloud and my pillar, I will talk to my preacher and I might just throw this in here. If you're going to ask his advice, then take it. Don't go get his advice and then go do what you want to do anyway. If you're not going to take his advice, don't listen to him in the first place. Just go on and do it. But if you're going to ask that man of God, realize God's going to put his stamp of approval on it. And God's going to bless it. And God will help you. Had a man move to our town. And we don't have that very often because we're not a large, complex, small city. And but this man was a preacher's son-in-law, married to a preacher's daughter. And the preacher left the church and the family was left there. And it was a situation where they felt like they needed to go because of the father being the pastor. And so they called me, the friend of the man that took the church. Both of them are my friends. They called me and I said, yeah, they can come. So they came. But this son-in-law had a streak in him of resentment against the ministry. He had a streak in him of, of rebellion somehow. And one of the very first services he came, he got to talking to one of the men in the church in fact it's now probably going to be my assistant I haven't done that yet but he's my assistant just left to start a church in San Francisco and so this man's coming on he'll probably be my next right hand man and uh, they were just standing around talking he's a low key kind of guy just a likable fella he's done well in life he's an accountant and, and uh, so this man in my church that, that uh, had been there for a number of years and got saved there and he said you know I'm thinking about changing jobs I, I need to talk to brother Bo tonight to see what he thinks about it and this preacher's son-in-law looked at him like he was an idiot. He said, and this is what he said. He said, why are you going to talk to him? It's none of his business. And the other man handled it very well. He said, well, it may not be, but in my life it is. I want his advice. I want him to help me pray about it. 
And he said, I don't know what your experience in life is, but I like it when the preacher feels good about moves in life I make. The one that felt that way is probably going to be my next right-hand man. The one that didn't feel that way kept on going down that trail. Today he doesn't serve God. Today he is not in the church because he became his own priest. He didn't need a man of God. He didn't need somebody to tell him. And let me tell you something. It is going to happen to you. There is going to come a moment or many moments in your life where the preacher is going to tell you something you don't want to hear. How many people in here are young people not married? Can I, would you raise your hand? Oh, those are trying days. What if you fall in love with somebody and the preacher says, I'm telling you, they're not for you. Have five little litmus tests they have to pass before they can get married in our church. It's kind of dumb, but it's the best I can do. <laughs> had to have something. I kept pummeled with questions, and so I had to, you know, self-defense. So finally, some defensive mechanism will operate inside you. And so I came up with five little principles. One is God. Does this marriage please God? I mean, obviously, if you're marrying a sinner, it's out. We stop there. We don't go any further. So, first of all, it has to clear God. Second of all, and you may disagree with this, but it's okay. It has to agree with my feelings as pastor. Does the pastor feel good about this marriage? If he doesn't, it's out. At any of these five points, it's out. Thirdly, do the parents agree to this? And some of you would say, well, I don't go. That's okay with me. This, I, this is my church. Okay, this is the way we do it. The parents have to agree. I've never lost by waiting long enough for the parents to finally agree. Okay? So that's the third point. The fourth point was culturally. Is there any clash in culture here that's really going to sever marriages or families or whatever? And you may not agree with that, but that's okay. That's the way we work. And the last one is their Christian testimony. Is marrying this person going to do anything to your Christian testimony? testimony that is not right because I'm going to tell you something ultimately your highest responsibility in God is to be a witness to the living testimony that you are and if you do anything that tears that testimony down that ought to be something that you look long and hard at but if you can get through those five hoops then it's free sailing and you can get married in our church but I'm telling you I'm just telling you there is going to come a time in your life that your preacher is going to tell you no about something and it's my deep-held conviction that the acid test, you ever heard this, Brother Morton? The acid test of spirituality is correction. <laughs> it ain't how much you give in the offering, although that's wonderful. Thank God for it. Keep doing it. It ain't how fast you run the aisles or how you shout. But the acid test of how spiritual you really are is what do you do when you are corrected? Right. I got a little Mexican guy in my church. You would love him. His name is Lotto. Lotto was a, it's a bad word, but it's the truth. He was a wetback. That's the proper term in Madeira for people that came across the border illegally, and he sure enough did. It was a close escape. He was crossing the border one night. It was foggy, and the border patrol reached out and grabbed him by the sleeve. He was 16 years old. He thought, I can outrun this guy and go, ha, and he did. <laughs> and so, <laughs> seven years later, he's in my church. But this was the story. He was in Oregon, and he was headed back from Mexico. This is a beautiful story. He was headed back from Mexico, and there were two vans, and he was getting on a van, and finally they said, we're full. You ride in that other van. He said, that one? He said, I don't want to ride over there. I don't know those guys. They said, ride over there anyway. It's too full in here. So, okay. So the other van went back to Mexico. His van broke down in Madeira. 
broke down. They was all mad. They was all wanting to go home to Mexico and spend all the big bucks they made picking peaches and walnuts and all that stuff, you know. And so they're sitting around drinking beer and just acting crazy. It's Friday night, then Saturday night, Sunday afternoon rolls around. Finally they get the van fixed and he's leaving Monday morning to go back to Oaxaca. That's where he lived. It, it's not spelled like it sounds, believe me. Oaxaca. And a lady in the church sees these wetbacks drinking. She goes over to him and says, why don't you come to church tonight? And they all look at her and say, why not? Lotto was in that group. He came that night. The next morning, he is going back to Mexico. You talk about how close your brush with salvation can come sometimes. He was on a van that happened to break down in our town. And he was going to leave the next morning. And he came and sat on the back row. I asked him the other day. I, said, I thought surely some evangelist was preaching. When, when he, I said, a lot of who was preaching when you got saved? I thought, man, probably Brother Copeland. You know how he, you know how he is. He can pray him through by the droves. And, and he said, you were preaching, Brother Bull, the night I got the Holy Ghost. And I felt pretty good about that. till I realized he didn't understand English. He didn't understand anything I said. <laughs> he came that night and got the Holy Ghost. Now he does my Spanish work. But let me tell you his sterling quality. His outstanding quality to this point in his spiritual journey. Is every time I've ever had to say anything. It's only been about three times in seven years. But every time I've had to say something to him. He looked at me and said. Please tell me when I'm wrong pastor. I want to be saved. And he doesn't pout. And he doesn't sulk. And he doesn't sit on the pew and act like nothing's going on. Yeah. To me, he is a spiritual man. The acid test of spirituality is correction. Can a man of God come to your life and be a priest unto you and tell you what sacrifice is acceptable and unacceptable? Is there anybody in your life that can say that ram does not meet the qualification of God? Take it back and bring me another one. Ages are characterized even in the secular world. We could talk about the Renaissance. I could talk about the Reformation. I could talk about other time periods in history where people went through ages and they're characterized. What I'm telling you today is this. When we stand on the balcony of heaven and we look back on our day, I believe the most dangerous sin you're facing is not TV, it's not video, it's not jewelry, and all those are prevalent. All of those are there. They're all there. But none of those will have an influence until you become your own priest. And the day that you decide, I have as much knowledge as he does, I have prayed about this, God has dealt with me about this, that's the day you enter into your greatest danger zone. It's my conviction that no one has ever backslid until they became their own priest. It's my conviction that there's never been one single instance of church trouble until somebody became their own priest and decided, I don't need what he's got to say. I can figure it out myself. And it's not always open rebellion. Sometimes it's sincere, well-intentioned. You hear that little voice inside you. And Verbal Bean taught us, he taught me as a young man, hearing those tapes again and again, that it's very hard to discern the voice of God from the voice of self. And you get down to pray and it sounds like God and sometimes it's yourself doing the talking. That's why you need a preacher. Abijah, you didn't get much note 
in the book of Kings. The Chronicles wrote about the things that were lasting. The temple, the monarchy. And the writer of Chronicles said, you know what? There's an element in this that our future needs to hear. That we need to stay with a God-based ministry. God-based ministry. A couple of more things and I'll leave you alone. We'll quit. Maybe we could have an organ player. A little part of music never hurts anybody. It helps. At home I say funeral music, but that's not polite, so part of music. My brother-in-law went to start a church in Canada years ago. He was knocking on doors one day. He knocked on a door of an obvious immigrant family and the fellow was from Romania. My brother-in-law said, I'd like to invite you to my church. And the man said, I'm not coming to your church. He said, why? He said, because I already tried all the churches in this town and they don't believe the truth. He had a strong accent. My brother-in-law just kept persisting. Home missionary, you know, I mean, you, you got to do something. So, didn't have any people in his church. And so he said, you just stay with it. He said, well, what is it that you don't like? He said, nobody in this town baptized in Jesus' name. He said, they're all baptized Father, Son, Holy Ghost. He said, in Romania, we baptize Jesus' name. My brother-in-law said, well, we baptize in Jesus' name. He kind of looked at him like, yeah, sure. But he said, well, in Romania, we believe in Holy Ghost, talking tongues. He said, these churches, they don't believe in that. My brother-in-law said, well, we believe that. You have to have the Holy Ghost speaking to him. He said, well, in Romania, we dress holy. He said, I go to these churches, they watch the TV. He said, they, they, the women, they cut their hair. They wear the stuff on their face. He said, no, nah, I'm not coming to your church. He said, my brother-in-law said, that's the way we believe. The little Romanian couldn't believe it. He thought, you mean after all this time, I'm finally going to find a church that believes it the way we did in Romania? Apostolic. He came, it was a love affair from the very beginning. That family had been in Canada for about four years with no place to go. They would not go to an Assembly of God church. They would not go to a charismatic church. They said, we're not doing it. We're not raising our kids in that environment. We'll just wait until God does something. And my brother-in-law knocked on his door and they got in the church. And it was a beautiful association. This little fellow came to my brother-in-law one day and he said, he said, uh, Brother Lazenby, I want to go on a fast. I want to go on a long fast. Forty days. My brother-in-law thought, man, forty days is a long time. The guy was about five, three or four, weighed about 110 pounds before he started the fast. But my brother-in-law thought, well, if God's in it, I, don't, I can't tell him no. And so he said, okay, just be careful. Drink fluids and water or whatever. So the man went for forty days just water no fluids when he got through he looked like he'd come out of a concentration camp he was emaciated he was skeletal looked like a cadaver the night he was going to end the fast he came to church that night he said to my brother-in-law he said brother Lazenby he said can I pray for you now you'll have to pardon the humanity of my brother-in-law because I I share that. I've had people go on fast and backslide. I've had people go on fast and get so spiritual. They, they go wacko. They spin out of control. Okay. So he, it was such an unusual request. He, he caught him off guard. And the man said, can I pray for you? And my brother-in-law said, well, sure. Sure. He said, can we go to the basement? And I pray for you. And I had a little resurgence of concern. But he said, sure. I got down in the basement. 
my brother-in-law's big fella. This little guy puts his little skinny, frail arm up on the shoulder of his pastor. He began to cry. And he said, God, I ask you tonight to let every benefit of this fast go to my pastor. I don't want nothing from my family. I don't want nothing from me. I want our church to grow. I want my pastor to be best preacher. And just wept and prayed for his preacher. I think it's ironic that when we get to that long line in front of the great white throne judgment, the last human voice you will ever hear will be the voice of your pastor. Because whether any of us like it or want to dodge the responsibility, the Bible says we will give an account. Obey them that have the rule over you for they watch for your soul as they that must give an account. And you're going to be in that line and Jesus is going to be there. On one side will be the glory of heaven, on the other side the terror of hell. And I ask you today, hear me please, when you're standing in that line and it's all on the line right then, what do you want your pastor to say? Do you want him to say, Lord, please don't make me talk about this. I don't want to talk about that they didn't pay their tithes. I don't want to talk about that they were intermittent in their church attendance. Please, God, don't make me do it. But God's going to make him do it. And if you hear me today, now listen. If you walk through that pearly gate and go through to the glory and splendor of heaven, the last human voice you'll ever hear will be the voice of your pastor saying they were faithful. They were good time payers. Every work night they were there. If I called a prayer meeting, they were there. And if you hear that admonition, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, it's a sad thing, but I'm convinced the last human voice you'll ever hear will be the sad tones of a pastor saying, God, I did my best. I tried. I sought God. I tried to get him to change. I just couldn't, couldn't get him to do it. What do you want your pastor to say about you when you stand before God? And the last thing I want to tell you is something that has to be judged. It's not a Bible concept. It's just, it's one of those things that Corinthians says, better this judge. I was preaching a revival in Oakdale, California back in the late 70s. Jimmy Prather was the pastor, small church. The church would not have been even as big as the platform. Real small church. We had 70 and 80 people crammed in there as wall-to-wall people. I preached uh, two or three weeks. I don't remember now. Three, I think. And every night, the house was jammed, and in the very back there was a chair placed. And a lady would come and sit in that chair. Folding chair. People everywhere. This woman had cut hair, dyed jewelry obviously not a member of the church obviously not a new convert because each night she sat back with her arms folded like that and just sat there I asked the pastor who she was after a service or two and he said she's a backslider and I made it one of my personal goals 
to preach well enough to entice that woman to pray through. I, I, I just set that as one of my goals. It became an intense battle of spirits. Every night I preached harder and reached harder. I remember the concluding night of that revival and I will never forget it to my dying day. She was sitting back there with her arms folded as usual and I preached and preached and preached and preached. When I got through preaching and made the altar call, there were no heads showing in the audience. Everybody was either in the altar or down between the pews. I'm telling you, God's conviction was there. I have never preached that hard in my life. Except that woman sitting back there. I was so broken. I felt like such a disappointment. I remember turning and just falling on my knees and praying. And I said to God, why won't that woman come? This is what you have to judge. I feel God spoke to me. It's only one of two times I ever felt God really spoke to me in my life. I felt like God spoke to me that night. And I was down praying. This is what I think God said. You judge it. God said, that woman would be in hell tonight if it were not for Jimmy Prather. It was like cold water went down my spine. I raised up off the floor and looked across the platform at Jimmy Prather. He was on his face, curled up in a little ball, sobbing, crying, travailing, interceding. And I just sat there stunned, realizing the value of that preacher to that woman. If it wasn't for him, she would have already been winged into eternity. That's my opinion. I ask you right now, where would some of you be if it wasn't for a preacher? Don't ever lift your tongue to him. Don't ever insinuate negative characteristics. Don't make fun of him in any way at all. Abijah had enough sense to know if I'll just stay with the plan, <laughs> victory is mine. And God forbid that there should ever be a schism in the church. God forbid that there should ever be a moment's trouble at a congregation. But if there is, Stay with the plan. Let the others talk all they want. Let them do whatever they want. But you get the revelation. God has a perfect plan. He uses imperfect men. But he has a perfect plan. Brother Morton mentioned that we have a little deal in our church, same as his, called the Council of Elders. I tell my church openly, publicly, and often, you are free to call that council anytime you want about any subject that you want. Because I don't want to get off doctrinally. If you have a question about finances, anything about how this church is run, about any discipline problem, you have an open door. Call Brother Morton and I'll name the other men where the keys is on them. Call them anytime you want. Because I am not God. I am a man. And I am so fallible. And I have so great a tendency to make the wrong choice. I am not afraid of my brethren to help me. And if I'm right, 
and that saint calls one of them, that will only reinforce the fact that I am a wise shepherd. And if I am wrong, I want them to help me pastor effectively. I don't want to be out here on a limb by myself. And I don't want my people to feel like they're boxed in with nobody to turn to. And you may fall out with me. But if I die today, if something happens to me on the way home, Brother Morton and Brother Keys are going to choose who the next pastor is in my congregation. Because I know too well how somebody can come by that can play the guitar and sing well and preach well. But they may not handle their finances well. And they may not have everything together. Preachers know preachers like saints will never know preachers. And I'm trusting it to them. I wonder if you'd stand with me tonight, today. I haven't really delved into this the way I really wanted to. But I feel like your greatest danger in life, spiritually, is when you become your own priest. Because I will tell you that when you do, you can find a preacher to agree with you. The reason the Charismatics had such phenomenal growth was they were all their own priests. Anybody could do whatever they want. That's right. Just go. That appeals to the human nature. That appeals to our human flesh. So your greatest danger in life is when you become your own priest. I wonder if we could take a moment to close our eyes. Young people, saints, preachers. And tell God here, I don't want to be my own priest, God. I want to listen to the voice of the ministry. I don't ever want to get so far along that I forget God's got a plan out there for my life. Listen to the preacher. Hallelujah. Lift your hands and ask God to help you. Listen to the preacher in the crisis hours of your life. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh. 
Sings my soul. 